you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. From the Lone Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, May Martinez. California has lifted the statewide stay-at-home order and served any decisions on restrictions back onto L.A. County's court. Remember, we were in the most restrictive purple tier. Now we'll find out where we go from here. Plus, you've heard of the coronavirus UK variant. There now may be a new one that California can call their own. It's all ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for being with us today. Wishing you all a very happy Monday. Now, it's been a very busy day, so we're going to jump right in. Governor Gavin Newsom announced today that he will be lifting the statewide stay-at-home order. Now, that means in some counties in California, you can expect outdoor dining, salons, and some other businesses to open back up again for the first time since December. Now, in Los Angeles County, they're having the presser right now. We'll get to more details as they come in. But one of the supervisors, Hilda Solis, said that L.A. County will be reopening back into the purple tier, the purple tier being the most restrictive tier. And according to the book, many non-essential indoor business operations are closed. So that's according to the purple tier. But remember that outdoor dining was allowed. And Solis says that uh, by the end of the week, you can expect outdoor dining in L.A. County to once again open. All right. So this decision, though, by Governor Newsom surprised uh, many people this morning, but he said he made the move because things are, well, looking brighter in California. We're seeing a flattening of the curve. Everything that should be up is up. Everything that should be down is down. Case rates, positivity rates, hospitalizations, ICUs, testing starting to go back up, as well as vaccination rates in this state, but we are not out of the woods. Now, for example, projections show that Southern California will have more than 33 percent available ICU capacity as of February 21st. It's four weeks from now. Now, that is good news. But as the governor said, we are not out of the woods just yet. So what's behind the sudden change of policy and where do we go from here? Here to discuss all of this, we turn to Carla Marinucci, senior writer for Politico's California Playbook. Carla, back to back take two show appearances. That's not bad. Hey, hey, good to be with you. Good to be with you, too. Now, okay, let's start with that first question, because for months, Governor Newsom has been talking about the need to keep up this stay-at-home order amidst uh, the winter surge in in COVID-19 cases. Now it seems like we've done a, a 180. So are cases really down enough to justify opening things back up? Well, you know, the state shift comes as California has seen a steady decrease in new infections over the past couple of weeks as well as a reduction in hospitalizations and ICU use. Newsom uh, at his press conference just a little bit ago used that term light at the end of the tunnel a number of times. And he had some you know, data to back this up. He, he said that cases are down almost 38% over the last eight days. Uh, average positivity rate is about 8% and hospitalizations down 20% ICU down 10% in the last two weeks. Now, I mean, this is, you know, still the reality check here. 
all but four of the 58 counties in California are in the state's most restrictive purple uh, tier status that you mentioned, LA County is there. And they're expected to remain there for weeks. But the bottom line is that, you know, Dr. Mark Galley, the, the uh, Health and Human Services Secretary says, California is slowly starting to emerge from the most dangerous surge of the pandemic. But yeah, we still got a long way to go, uh, 5,000 deaths uh, as, uh, as Newsom noted in LA County alone. Uh, in, in the last uh, month. So that's, that is a, a figure that they've still got to tackle in a very big way. And I realize I'm not an MD, but Dr. Galley is. Uh, you know, we, we've seen this trend before, though, haven't we? I mean, we lock down, cases taper off, we open back up, and, and then another surge happens. So, I mean, what's there to inform Newsom and, and Dr. Galley that this time around will be any different? It's, it's a really good question. I mean, remember that Newsom was something of a national hero when he put into effect that first statewide shutdown in March and that's when his administration took this county by county approach and they used the data like infection rates and so forth to figure out where to go. Um, then the cases surged after Thanksgiving and that all just seemed to go out the window. So uh, rather than this county by county approach, he went to the five regions and the, uh, the colored tiers, et cetera. Um, you know, right now, four, you know, four of those five regions, 98% of the state's population is still under restriction because they didn't meet the 15% threshold of the ICU capacity. That's what he's been basing it on all along. And he says that is what has changed. Now, to be clear, because as you mentioned, we were in this situation where it was region. Southern California was a region. Uh, Sacramento, uh, there were other regions in California, five of them, as you mentioned. So now what happens next for California? You got to look at where what county you're in again and, and, and kind of go by the tiers, right? Yeah, I mean, actually, I think confusion reigns at this point. And that's I mean, true, it, right? I mean, that, that it, yes. it's come down so quickly that I think it's caught a lot of people off guard. He took he took a lot of people off guard on both the, the Democratic Party and the Republicans were criticizing him this morning, saying, why did we have to find out about this by Twitter? You saw Los Angeles County Supervisor Janice Hahn on Twitter saying, hey, what is L.A. County going to do now? Uh, where do we go in the in just the last couple of hours? We've seen Riverside, San Bernardino, Santa Clara, San Francisco all issue releases or they're holding press conferences as we speak, saying they're going to start allowing outdoor dining, personal services, and sports. Remember, this is all up to the individual counties. They can be tougher than the state if they make that call. Uh, but at this point, it does look like the, the outdoor dining, perhaps the worship services, everybody agrees that really big mass events like concerts are still going to be out of bounds. Uh, but right now, uh, at this point, everybody, it looks like, the counties cannot defend continuing to shut down outdoor dining because there hasn't been a lot of great evidence uh, on the transmission risk there. Now, let's hear an example of this uh, surprise. Uh, here's uh, L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti when asked about what lifting of the state to at-home order means for L.A. We learn about this as quickly and as suddenly as the public does. Um, I think it's my expectation that he is just saying, before everybody thinks it's lifted everywhere in California, remember after we had the closures at the state level based on their colored tier system and we were in purple, and by the way, remain in purple, they overlaid on top of that a stay-at-home order. So remove that and that purple tier is still here. Carl, I got to admit, uh, to hear a public official, an elected official, say we learn about this as quickly and as suddenly as the public does, especially when it comes to something as serious as this. I mean, we could have fun with something less serious when, when someone says something like this, but not about this. This That's kind of frightening to, to hear. Absolutely. And, and he took so much heat, Newsom did this morning, 
um, from public officials saying, we didn't get any notice here. Now, Newsom in his press conference said, well, look, we have the data. Did, were we going to wait till everybody knew and we have, you know, had all kinds of meetings? No, this is good news. We need to get it out there as soon as possible. That's, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what he said. Look, he's under enormous and economic and political pressure at this point. When you talk about the restaurants, and we've talked about this, A, the number of restaurants that are suing him to reopen, saying that if they don't get to reopen soon, they will never reopen. And that is 75,000 restaurants in California. They produce about $97 billion in revenue every year. They're, they're worth about a, uh, 1.8 million jobs. That is a very big deal in California. And that is just one group that is pressuring Newsom to do something about it soon. So he said, well, we have the data. We're, gonna, we're, we're opening it up. And uh, public officials were caught off guard. And the ironic thing, Carla, about uh, the California Restaurant uh, Association, he's a member. He's, he's a member of that association. <laughs> that is right. I, no, that is absolutely right. And remember, I mean, uh, these are people who are on the front lines there. They're in the communities. They are people that Californians know and love. And they're watching, and Californians are watching these places that they have been relied upon for generations closing one after another. In some cities like Antioch up here in the Bay Area, one in four restaurants closing. That's something that cannot be sustained. And I think Newsom knows that. Uh, that, is, that is one of the big lobbying groups that has got his ear, but there are certainly many others, and that doesn't even count the political side of this thing. Yeah, and, and through the Restaurant Association, Carla, that's kind of how you got this story last night, right? Late last night. Yes, exactly. That, a letter went out to the Restaurant Association before it went out to <laughs> elected officials, and up and down the state, Democrats and Republicans were just eviscerating Newsom this morning, saying they should have gotten much more uh, notice on this, and now, as we speak, they're having press conferences to try and work out what are the details and how our local entities going to be able to deal with this and handle it. You mentioned the economic pressure that uh, Gavin Newsom is under. There's also that political pressure you mentioned. So he was asked about this, about the recall campaign that's been gathering signatures. A reporter from Fox 11 uh, asked him about this. Here's what Gavin Newsom said about that. Yeah, that's just complete, utter nonsense. So let's just dispense with that fundamental, foundationally nonsense. So, okay, so Gavin Newsom dismissed uh, what he did um, on the recall as, as a reason for the move. So, but how much pressure is Newsom feeling from this recall effort th at this point, Carla? Uh, look, you can say it's nonsense, but the bottom line is tomorrow, A, marks 50 days until the proponents of this recall have to turn in 1.5 million valid signatures. They say they have 1.1 million and at this point, they are getting big money from uh, Republican uh, donors like Jeff Palmer. He's a big real estate mogul, just put in $150,000. Uh, they're going to need a couple million. It is still a long shot drive. But the fact is that Gavin Newsom knows this is out there and knows there is a very good chance uh, that these recall proponents will be able to come up with the time and the money and the signatures, which means this entire political year could be burned up in that uh, that recall drive if, if the proponents get what they want, which is they say an, a, an election this summer uh, on the on the recall. So very much in his mind uh, as, as this is uh, looming, he, he, he may deny it, but uh, I think that that's the political reality is there and the whole nation I think is watching. This is a big political story nationwide. And his tone, I think, in that clip was telling. I mean, I, it, it, <laughs> yes. I, for me, it was. I mean, it, it sounds when you get annoyed by something, that means you're 
thinking about it, or at least it's yeah, in your exactly. head a little bit. Uh, we're talking yeah. to Carla Marinucci, senior writer for Politico's California Playbook. You know, when, when Governor Newsom first announced the stay-at-home order, it came just after uh, the California Restaurant Association challenged L.A. County's restriction on outdoor dining. It seemed at the time, Carla, that, that Governor Newsom kind of took the pressure off the county as if to say, don't worry, the ban on outdoor dining is now coming from the state now. It's coming from me. So I'm wondering, you think this factored at all into the state's thinking behind the stay-at-home order? And if so, what's the strategy now that uh, it's lifted? I mean, the restaurants have been the focal point in so many ways, um, mainly because even some of of the health officials, leading health officials have said the outdoor dining closure was a tipping point for many people. It was it was one reason why people did not pay attention to the stay-at-home order. They began to get weary of the entire idea of closures on the COVID, and they took it for granted, and that created some of the surge effects. So uh, I, I, at this point, I think people are realizing that Something has to happen. Uh, average folks need some place to go. There was a suggestion that by closing outdoor dining, you in effect put people in in the in areas and in positions partying and so forth where they were spreading the virus more than they would have been, and it would have been safer to just let them do that. So I think there's a recalibration on Newsom's part, a sense that they have to look at safety, but they also have to look at reality in, ter- in terms of how can people go long term, and that's the cal calibration he's making today, along with, he says, uh, the the real data that the state has come down and the state is controlling. I have to note, though, he's under a lot of criticism on transparency on these figures. Where exactly are they coming from and how is he coming to those figures? That is a question that has not really been answered. And I think Newsom is going to get continued pressure uh, to come up with a more transparent way to figure out how uh, the COVID figures are are calculated and how they're going to be fi- figured out more in the future. Yeah, the, the the numbers that we're getting from the state, from Governor Newsom in his presser today, the, we have the answers, the, you know, the final answers. We don't have the formula, the the the, the equation to, to get to the answer. That's what we don't have. And I think that's also uh, one of the things that's frustrating a, a lot of people when, when you have these numbers and you figure out, okay, so how did you come up with the numbers? And there is no answer to that quite yet. So, you know, Carl, one more thing, you know, um, so Newsom lifts the statewide a stay-at-home order because as of today, as we mentioned, the projected ICU capacity for February 21st looks good enough. So can Gavin Newsom technically claim that his order was a success or that that contributed to the numbers seemingly getting better? It's a a really good question. So much, I think, will have to do with his success on the vaccines. Uh, Remember, California is in the bottom of the barrel still when it comes to uh, the the percentage of California residents who've been able to get this vaccine. He announced today a new system called MyTurn that's gonna be rolled out in Los Angeles and San Diego counties will allow people to get, figure out where they can get the vaccine and how and make an appointment. That's what people have been demanding if he's a success with that, if, if that's going to be a big factor uh, as to whether he gets an A plus on that report card when it comes to how he handled the COVID pandemic. And I remember Dr. Galley mentioned in December that uh, the whole reason for the stay at home order was to keep people from going outside. But as you mentioned, that might have driven him inside. Uh, Carla Marinucci is the senior writer for Politico's California Playbook. Carla, as always, thanks a lot. Good to be with you. Thanks.
All right, another news uh, from Gavin Newsom. The governor and the state legislative leadership agreed to extend California's eviction protections until the end of June. Under the extension, landlords cannot evict tenants who are unable to pay rent because of COVID-19 income loss as long as those tenants pay 25% of their rent by June 13th. The moratorium will also include $2.6 billion in federal rent relief. The money will go toward 80% of the back rent owed to landlords from April 2020 to March 2021 if said landlords agree to forgive the other 20% and not pursue evictions. For landlords that uh, do not opt in, the money will go toward paying off 25% of the back rent that tenants owe. The legislature is expected to vote on the bill this week before current protections expire on Sunday. All right, now I'm sure you've heard of the coronavirus UK variant. Well, now there might be one that California can call their own, their very own California coronavirus variant. We'll find out all about that and more when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Sometimes in our lives, we all have pain, we all have sorrow, but if we are wise, we know that there's always tomorrow. Lean on me. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Martinez. Big news today is that Governor Newsom has lifted the statewide stay-at-home orders. Now, for Los Angeles County, we are still in the purple tier, which is restrictive. But according to one of the L.A. County supervisors, Hilda Solis, uh, it, uh, the county will reopen in the purple tier. So outdoor dining will again happen by the end of the week. Now, there are a lot more questions about this and all things related to the coronavirus pandemic. So joining us uh, to answer some of those is Professor Ann Ramoyne, an infectious disease specialist and a professor of epidemiology at UCLA. Professor Moyne, thanks for joining us again. Hi, it's nice to be here. All right, Jeff, first off, your reaction to the statewide stay-at-home order being lifted. I think, as we noted earlier, many of us, um, many even elected leaders, were surprised by the news this morning. Well, you know, I think that the the, the fact that it's been lifted is, is really a, a sign that we're seeing some positive data coming out, that we have a lower daily ca- case count, hospitalizations are down. But as uh, Dr. Ferrer said, we are far from out of the woods. So I think we, we need to, to take this as a good sign. We're moving in the right direction, but we just can't let our guard down. Ideally, Professor, would, would, would it be best for us in, in the spirit of transparency to know the formula that the state is using to come up with their ICU projections? I mean, the projections look great, and that's great news if they happen, but I think, I think everyone would like to know how you got those numbers. I think that's, uh, that's the question for Gavin Newsom. Well, I think it'll be important to to provide this information and make it readily available so that everybody can see it and everybody can understand it. Uh, I, I I do think that that really having people understand what the the guideposts are is is something that will help people really make decisions based on their own risk and and the risk around them. 
Now, when it comes to uh, what happens for L.A. County, I mentioned how uh, Hilda Solis, one of the supervisors, said outdoor dining will uh, start to happen again by the end of the week. What is your understanding, uh, Professor, of what happens now generally for L.A. County? Well, you know, I mean, I think that what's going to happen is that L.A. County is going to be very seriously reviewing the data and keeping a very close eye on it. And, you know, will if if we fit the the criteria, we'll start to 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 see things reopen. But I think that the key here is that you have to remember that it doesn't mean that returning to life as normal. We're going to have to keep physical distancing. We're going to have to limit activities that bring people together from other households where they're not wearing masks, in particular in indoor settings. And so I think that that doing whatever we can to be able to continue to reduce the, the numbers is going to be key. I think we've gotten used to very, very high numbers, unfortunately. Um, so we're, we, are, we are nowhere near out of the woods. It's just we're doing a lot better than we were previously. And that messaging that what you just said, we're not out of the woods. I mean, that that is critical because I think when people heard, okay, stay at home orders lifted, that meant to a lot of people that, hey, that means things are going back to normal or close to it. And as you said, that's nowhere near the case. No, it's not the case at all. We're, we're still in a situation where we still have, you know, hospitals are still are still overburdened. We still have a very high number of cases. Sure, it's a lot lower, but if we talked about the numbers that we're seeing today, two months ago, we would have been alarmed, right? So I think there's also a little bit of, of we've, we've gotten a little bit um, desensitized to, to these kinds of high numbers. Um, and we're still seeing a very high death rate from COVID-19. Uh, and, and that's happened in the last couple of days, uh, you know, the last couple of weeks here. We're, we're seeing this, this, this surge. You know, the other thing that we have to be concerned about is that we do have these variants that are circulating, these more contagious variants. The UK variant is also potentially more virulent, meaning they can do more damage. You might see more death and more very severe outcomes. So if this variant starts to circulate as widely as it has in other places, we could really be be looking at another surge. So the key is, is even if we can do some incremental opening here, we have to constantly have our eyes on these numbers, have much better viral genomic surveillance that is key, and really be ready to act quickly as opposed to waiting to, to act. And some of the things we're just getting in, uh, as, as she's saying, um, Dr. Ferreira is mentioning some of the things that are going to happen by Friday. Uh, private gatherings are going to be allowed. Personal care facilities can open at 25% uh, capacity. Uh, what, what do you think? I mean, that's, that's kind of the way it was before the stay-at-home order, so I don't know necessarily what a big difference it's going to be. Well, it's going to make a big difference to business owners yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and to, to people who really you know, are, are, are counting on it. And, and it's going to be on, incumbent upon everybody to do their part to make it, these interactions as safe as they possibly can be. And, and that's going to be a key across the board. You want to start doing indoor dining, or no, sorry, not indoor dining at all. I'm talking about outdoor dining. You start any of these things, outdoor dining, you start any of these, these kinds of uh, activities. Again, you really need to make sure that everybody is doing their part. And when we see more contagious variants circulating, it means that any breach in protocol carries more risk with it. And so I think people have to take that into consideration. And remember that just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do something. Now, you mentioned that variant. Um, How will we know if it is indeed a deadlier variant? And when might we know this? So what we've seen in the UK is some preliminary data that suggests that um, we it's it's definitely in the the mortality rate has gone up 
uh, in certain age categories, the higher age categories with these new variants circulating. And so we'll look for the same things. We're going to have to be looking very, very closely at the data and then making sure that those data are um, that the, that the all of the trends in all of the different populations that we have here, um, we're not seeing higher rates. And that means we also really have to have the data, the viral, so the, the genomic data to correlate with these outcomes. Yeah, just that, means that yeah. we've got to get that surveillance going. It's got to be done. And we're not doing a good job of it here in the United States at all. What about it makes it deadlier? What, what about the actual virus itself happens that makes it a deadlier one? Well, I think that the, the there's still a lot that people are trying to learn, but the constellation of mutations that we've seen here that have, that um, are are making these variants occur um, are making them more contagious. So they're more easily spread from person to person. The the um, idea is that potentially people are shedding more virus, um, more infectious virus, and so there's more virus. Um, being expelled from one person, which makes it easier to, to infect. And then we're also seeing that it may be possible that these variants are, are able to infect cells more easily. And so those are, those are the two mechanisms that would make mm -hmm. it more, more uh, contagious. But here's the thing. There's something that everybody can do about it. And it's preventing getting this virus by doing the things that we know that work. That's wearing a mask, social distancing, hand hygiene, avoiding getting together with people outside your household. I know that we're going to be allowed to do it, but just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. I would tell everybody mitigate risk as much as you can. Uh, you know, we're, we've got vaccinations coming. We've got people getting vaccinated. Just the longer that we can put off getting um, this virus, the better off we are because it is, as always, you know, you're taking a chance. You don't know if you're going to be the person that's going to get very sick. You don't know if you're, you get it, you spread it asymptomatically to somebody else and they could get very sick. And I know this from personal experience that this could really be a, a major problem. Um, not, not myself personally, but my, um, my family, I've, you know, I, I have an uncle who's very, very sick right now and oh. he, you know, he was vaccinated, um, just, just too late. Uh, so I just think, you know, it's one of these things that, um, you know, got, he got sick right bef before he could get vaccinated. So it's just, you know, a, a, a problem in general. You mentioned some of the things that uh, technically we will be allowed to do. Doesn't mean we have to do it. Uh, the, the news keeps coming down from uh, the county. Family entertainment centers, card rooms, mini golf uh, open at 50% uh, capacity and malls, shopping centers uh, open indoors at 25% capacity. So there's some of the things that uh, we will be at some point uh, this week allowed to do. But uh, I mean, when it comes to all that stuff, you don't have to do it. Um, but just uh, you don't have you know, to do it. You're right. But the other thing is, is that people also, there have been a lot of data that's been coming out recently about masks. And I really encourage people to think about the PPE that they have yeah. and wearing it well. That's very, very important. So there's data that now has been shown that um, just a regular cloth mask has about a 50% efficacy at preventing uh, spread of this virus. If you put uh, two masks on, that can make it up to 75%. Um, and masks that have three-ply uh, um, you know, and multiple layers do a lot better. They're almost as good as these N95s that we, that we try to reserve for the, yeah. for the health workers. So I would say, you know, wear your mask, be very vigilant, wear it over your nose. Very important. If you can also wear eye protection, that's a bonus. Yeah, that's uh, what I have been doing. A professor been wearing two masks uh, for a few weeks now. Um, we mentioned the UK variant. I wanted to ask you about the variant that's been discovered here in California that's being dubbed a homegrown strain. Uh, what's the latest information on that one? 
So we're seeing that this this particular variant. So first of all, it's not surprising that we're seeing variants that are that are um, popping up here. We have very high rates of transmission. Viruses will um, they will mutate when they are spreading rapidly. The more that the virus has the opportunity to spread, the more it has an opportunity to mutate. So it's not surprising that we're seeing these kind of mutations here in um, in the state of California because we've got a really high rate of spread here. Um, we're seeing that that this particular variant and the information is still you know it's still forthcoming. We're still learning a lot more about it, but it's um, we're seeing more and more of it here. Uh, and and, you know, it, too, is likely to be more contagious. So, again, you know, related to these issues of of um, being more easily acquired. So that means that your risk of doing things that you were doing before, like going to the grocery store, for example, are probably more dangerous than they were previously. And again, that means wear better PPE, better PPE, stay farther away from people that are not in your household if you can. Um, and and again, I say this all the time, if you don't need to be out and about, then don't go out and about. Stay home if you can. There are plenty of people here in LA County who just do not have that luxury. They have to go to work. They're essential workers. They have to go to the store because they don't have any other options. So for those people who do have that choice, stay home. Support your local businesses by ordering in, picking yeah. up you know, curbside. Anything that you can do, the, the more we can reduce density and spread, the better off we're going to be. And if you go shopping, have a plan. I mean, just don't linger. Don't, uh, you know, go look for you know bargains. Have your plan. Go know what you're going to pick off the shelves and go get yourself out, out the door as quickly as possible. We're all, you're 100% right. Yeah, we're talking to Professor Ann Ramoyne, uh, an infectious disease specialist and professor of epidemiology at UCLA. Professor, let's uh, turn now to some specific listener questions. First, we've received a ton about the vaccine and where to go especially for that second shot. Uh, the state uh, just unveiled a new site aimed at helping people figure out the vaccine process. It's uh, called myturn.ca.org. That's uh, myturn.ca.org. It's clearly still a work in progress. Uh, my senior producer went in, uh, Professor, and could not make an appointment yet uh, for her uh, 77-year-old mom. But what's your hope for this site that uh, this site eventually can do for everyone? Well, I think it's really important to make vaccination as easy as possible and for people to really understand what their eligibility is and how they're going to get vaccinated as easy as possible. And I think that this site is a very good step in that direction. You know, there's no mass vaccination campaign that is easy. I've been doing these kinds of uh, I've been doing mass vaccination campaigns, working with the government in Congo for many, many years. It's very complicated and you have to have plans down to the very, very smallest detail. We call them micro plans. Everybody's got to have a micro plan to be able to know exactly what they're doing down to the nitty gritty. It's very, very complicated. So it's not surprising that it's been, um, you know, a little bit fraught in the first in this uh, first iteration. It's going to get better. I promise everybody that it will get better. It, but we've got to work out the kinks. One of the way to do it is to have this kind of information readily available to people, really figure out, are you eligible? If you're eligible, where are you going to go? How are you going to get it? What's next? All right, here's a question we got uh, from Pamela Dellinger. I'm a healthcare worker and I'm 68 years old. I got my first shot, a Pfizer shot, on January 19th. With low supplies, will my vaccine still be effective if I cannot get my second shot in 21 days? So we've just been been hearing a lot about this concern about the the second shot. And and here's some good news. The good news is is that, you know, there is some protective immunity conferred from that first dose after a few weeks. And what we understand from CDC uh, is that 
people can wait up to, to six weeks at this point, I believe it is, um, to be able to get their second dose, um, maybe even up to two months now. I have to, to look at the, the most recent statement here. But I think that the deal is, is if you can get your vaccine on time, you should. And if you can't, you know, a, a few weeks shouldn't make that big of a difference. Now, we've also uh, received a number of questions about whether it's safe to breastfeed after getting the vaccine. So I am not a, a clinician, and, okay. and that would certainly be something that you would want to ask your physician. Um, but, but uh, you know, I, I'm sure that there is data out on that. Um, but I would say if somebody has any concern at all related to what they should or shouldn't do for, the, for their health or for their children, they should talk to a doctor or whoever their primary care physician or primary care giver is. If someone has COVID or has recovered from it recently, should they get in line for a vaccine? So right now, the data um, or what the CDC recommends is that you can, if um, that if you have had COVID nineteen, you should wait at least ninety days after uh, you have cleared your infection uh, to get vaccinated. So the answer is yes. If you have had COVID, you can get a vaccine. Uh, but you just want to wait at least at least 90 days post-infection. At, le at least 90 days post-infection. Okay, what about uh, if people are taking other medications? We've had people write in about being on blood thinners or HIV meds. What can we tell them? Again, this is one of those things you got to talk to your primary care provider. That is the person who's going to tell you specifically about your situation. Um, I, you know, I think that, that people should, if they have any concerns at all about the vaccine and whether or not they should be taking it, they need to talk to the person that they go to for care. One last thing, Professor, why has California ranked so poorly when it comes to distribution? Any, any insight into why we're not doing so well there? Well, I, I think this goes back to the fact that California is, is one of the most populous um, one of the most populous states, uh, and, and we have, it's large in geography, it's large in population, uh, and, and it's very complicated to get this out. I think, you know, we also, our, our public health infrastructure has definitely suffered over the years, just as all public health infrastructures have suffered. But I just think the complexity of our population, uh, and, and the ability for us to be able to get this out and going is just all interrelated. You, if, it's, if you have a diverse and complex, large population, it's going to be complicated. That's uh, Professor Anne Ramoyne, infectious disease specialist and a professor of epidemiology at UCLA. Professor, as always, thanks. It's my pleasure. All right. Uh, a lot of news today. We're going to get to all of the news from the county coming up when Take Two continues in uh, 60 seconds. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. You can also hear Take Two podcasts on Apple Podcasts. I'm Martinez.
All right, big question. Where do you get your news? The answer better be KPCC. But I'm sure you have a variety of sources. It could be your local paper, Twitter, podcast, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube. I mean, the list can go on and on. With an abundance of information, the lines between fact and fiction can sometimes be a little blurred. And that is where media literacy comes in. For more on that, we bring you some news you can use when it comes to consuming all that information that's available to us. And joining us is Allison Trope. She's a clinical professor at the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism and founder of the Critical Media Project. Allison, in recent months, we've seen the spread of conspiracy theories such as QAnon, as well as myths and disinformation around the coronavirus and the election. So how does media literacy play a role in this? Media literacy really starts with a basic premise. We're living in, as you said, this media-saturated world, and we need to find ways to understand it. So media literacy builds on traditional literacy skills um, and offers us really new forms of reading and writing and thinking about how do we discern and decode all of the, the media and news around us. And as you said, one of the problems is there's increasingly blurred lines. So media literacy just helps us in coming up with tools that we can use in our daily life to, to kind of understand this world. And before we get to the tools that you're going to describe for us, um, I think, um, Allison, a lot of people would be surprised about how so many people either don't want to have these tools to be armed with media literacy, have never been told about it, or don't care anymore because news and emotion get mixed together. There's a lot of labor involved in right, doing yeah. media literacy. It's not easy. And it's not always successful. So there's a new kind of onus put on us as individuals in this kind of media literacy landscape. And I think one of the other things we need to think about is how we can have partners with the government and with some of the platforms out there in terms of creating regulations and different kinds of standards and conventions that can help us as individual citizens make sense of this world. So it's, it shouldn't be something that's only on us. At the same time, you know, I want to also point out that the U.S. is really behind. There are many countries throughout the world that have media literacy starting in kindergarten. And there has been a greater push for this in the last four years, partly because of the Trump administration and because of all of these, um, the ways in which fake news has been called out on so many levels. And so we see now a greater push at the federal and state level, but these efforts have been going on for several decades, and it's only now that we're really paying attention to them. All right. Now, with all that in mind, what questions should media consumers be asking themselves as information is taken in, and, and what are some essential skills for practicing media literacy? There are five typical words that we use to describe the kind of grounding of media literacy. And there are two parts. One is the decoding and one is the encoding. So the decoding is tied to how do we access the information? Where are we getting it? What, what's the platform and how do we think about that? Then how do we analyze what we're seeing? How do we think critically about it? How do we evaluate it? That's the third piece. And then on the encoding piece, we also have to think about how we are all media producers these mm. days, whether we are liking something or retweeting something or posting something, we have to think about what we are encoding in the content that we're producing. So how are we creating and how are we acting? 
And some of the questions that that we ask are really the kind of basic questions you may have done back in school when you did current events. Mm -hmm. It's basically who made this? You know, you want to think about who made this? What are the economic implications of that potentially? What is the message telling us? What are some of the ideologies and values being conveyed in this message? What might be missing from the message? Who might benefit from this message? So again, thinking about economics or bias, why was it made? Is there a particular agenda behind it? How might different people interpret the message? And then who might be harmed by the message? So really taking also an ethical stance and thinking of these messages, not in a vacuum, but as part of a greater society. We're talking about media literacy with Allison Trope, clinical professor at the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Allison, let's talk about how we can help people around us uh, be more cognizant of the information that they consume. And I'm thinking about young people, kids and grandkids who may be getting a lot of their information and thinking that it's news through sites like, say, TikTok. So how do we talk to them about this? Well, first of all, one thing I recommend for my students is to keep a media consumption log. So I have them record throughout a single 24-hour period, what they're looking at, what it means to them, how they feel when they're looking at it, and get them to try to decode some of the messages that they're seeing. I think, you know, the dinner table or the breakfast table are also times to really talk through what you're seeing. You know, we used to recommend sitting down with your kids while watching a movie, you know, and now they're often in their rooms on their own devices. But I think bringing those devices into a central area or providing space for conversations to talk about what did you see on TikTok? Can I watch it with you? Let's walk through it. And really getting them to to unpack you know, what is being represented in the media. And I think it's so crucial for young people, especially to think about representation, to think about who am I seeing in the media? Am I seeing myself? And am I seeing others? And how do they look? How is that impacting the way I see myself and the way I understand other people? A funny thing, Allison, you know, I, I brought up, you know, kids because uh, I have two two granddaughters and, and I'm always wondering and worrying about what they're consuming. But I'm, I'm just as worried about them as I am for my 70 year old uncle. I, I call him every single day and we talk about the news. And I always got to ask him, where are you hearing what you're hearing? There have been studies that have been done by Pew and other outlets that suggest that older people actually have a harder time with media literacy than younger people. And it's perhaps because they are not trained at all in media literacy, whereas I think younger kids have some training and perhaps are, are just in this kind of environment where they're, they're used to the media saturation. Allison, what about those who, who may have different political views? Because I think we all would love to overcome the divisiveness that's been like a blanket over this country the last few years. So how do we approach this uh, with our own families when it comes to media literacy? So I think that's one of the key values of media literacy for me. And it's why I started the Critical Media Project is to really use media as a tool uh, to understand across difference and to really understand uh, not only different political views, but really use the, the lens of social identity, thinking about race and ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, class, religion, age, disability, all of these identity factors, and really trying to use those and look at media representations of those different identities so that we can not only understand how we are represented in the media, but how 
others are represented and how we understand others because of those media representations. So using media as a tool then to really see not only what mainstream media is putting out there for us, but how can we use media ourselves to tell different stories and to engage with different people. So I think media literacy can be a really powerful tool to combat silos, to combat a lot of the hate and extremism we see in today's society. That's Allison Trope, clinical professor at the USC Enberg School for Communication and Journalism and the founder of the web-based media literacy resource called Critical Media Project. Allison, thanks a lot. Thank you. We're getting more of a full picture on what is allowed to be opened starting today. So private gatherings limited to three households, a total of 15 persons outdoor only. Family entertainment centers, card rooms, mini golf, batting cages, uh, go-karts, all that is open at 50% capacity uh, outdoors only. You've got indoor malls, shopping centers, low-risk retail open at 25%. We'll have more as uh, this uh, continues to get compiled as uh, Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and available most places you get your podcasts. Sammy Martinez. One of the highlights of the inauguration last week was hearing from National Youth Poet Laureate Anne Angelino Amanda Gorman. Her poem, The Hill We Climb, evoked the deadly insurrection at the Capitol and appealed for bravery in the face of darkness. Using language to empower is something Gorman says she learned from her mom, a middle school teacher in Watts. Now, another school in Watts, Locke College Preparatory Academy, has been looking for ways to empower students in the aftermath of the violence in Washington. KQED's education reporter Vanessa Rancaño says the school is making space for students to take on leadership roles and create the change they want to see. The morning after a mob stormed the Capitol, Locke College Preparatory Academy Principal of Academics Blaine Watson was stressing. I was up all night thinking about uh, the responsibility Between COVID and George Floyd's killing, he knew his mostly Black and Latino students were already raw. A lot of us make the mistake of just saying, all right, kids, you know, this is what happened and let's hear your thoughts. But we have to really be responsible about the messaging around race and how important or unimportant people of color are facing our government. He wanted to listen, but not just that. He knew students and teachers could best identify their own needs in the moment and find ways to meet them. He wanted to support them in doing that. So together, they're planning a series of virtual community town halls. They held the first one on the day before the inauguration. Welcome to our first, our very first series of panel discussions about the things that are going on in our nation, in our community. Student body president Marvion Maybon greeted the 60 or so people in the Zoom conference, a mix of students, parents, and staff. 
We want you to use your voices. Our school and our community is a community that we hear too often is underheard and underrepresented. And this will be that platform to now represent and make sure our voices are heard. It was a place for students to open up about how they'd been feeling since the insurrection. What happened at that Capitol is an insult. That was horrid. That struck all of us in a way that we never thought. It was horrible. I was in shock. And as young kids, we have to grow up with this. 17-year-old Angelica Barrera is student body vice president. So thank you for helping us lead young students like us to be activists to fight racial injustice. This was also a chance for teachers to give students context. History teacher Alette Kendrick described the insurrection as part of a pattern of white supremacist violence throughout American history. But Kendrick also emphasized this history provides lessons about how to move forward after the violence. We've seen in our country before, and we've survived it in our country before as well. Okay, and most importantly, These things happen as a backlash, as a negative response to a lot of positive changes and progress that's actually happening in our country. Kendrick and the students have talked about connecting this moment to Watts' own history of civil unrest and how it shaped the community. This very high school was built in response to the Watts riots. Students Marvion and Angelica then called their classmates to action. So get out there and get involved. Don't be scared, speak your mind, speak up. Principal Blaine Watson closed by telling the student leaders how proud he was. I'm thankful for you and all the other students who are who are participants today. The call has been made. You, you just got to answer it. All right. One lock, one love. We love you, Lock High School. And let's get ready for this inauguration tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to be a day you'll never forget. After the attack in D.C., one of Watson's biggest fears was that for students who already had reason to distrust their government, seeing Confederate flags flying in the Capitol and police standing by and taking selfies would lead them to lose all faith in their country. The next day, as Marvion watched the newly sworn-in President Joe Biden address the nation, he said he was holding his breath. I was like, please, please, please do not cut the strings and said there was an emergency, um, there was a shooting. But seeing Kamala Harris on stage made him feel something else, a sense of possibility. When I saw Barack Obama and Michelle Obama come out as a power couple, we had the first black senator who was there from Georgia. It was just so much hope and so much inspiration in that one frame. This is the real America. At least for now, this is the country he's choosing to believe in. For The California Report, I'm Vanessa Rancaño. All right, really quick, some more openings. Museums, zoos, and aquariums open for outdoor operations. Faith-based services, outdoors only. And uh, let's see what else. Hotels, motels, tourism, and individual travel allowed. So uh, there you go. Full list uh, coming up on laist.com. That's laist.com. Take two tomorrow at two. Talk to you then. 
The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.